Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's Thursday, August 31st, 2018. We are heading into Labor Day weekend, one of my favorite weekends because it coincides with the start of college football. Uh, we are in the middle right now. I guess technically not the middle, but we are in the midst of a five-game stretch of college football uh, games, but this is not a college football podcast, so we probably won't spend much time on that unless Norlander wants to for some reason. Matt Norlander <laughs> is here with me. This is the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Norlander, what's up with it? You excited for Labor Day weekend? I absolutely am for a few reasons. The return of college football, which is great. I watched the Purdue-Northwestern game, almost all of it last night. But let's just real quick before we get into what we're going to talk about here. I do have a quick couple of comments. One, um, I love I'm, – I'm more of an NFL fan than a college football fan. A huge NFL fan. It's my second favorite sport to college basketball. But I do like college football a lot. And I love how every year this weekend, Labor Day weekend, is the great appetizer for the NFL, even though both games are, are very different and distinct, obviously, the way that college basketball and the NBA are. But, you know, as I sit there watching it, I, I would say I'm a little bit of above a, a casual college football fan, but I'm not a diehard. Like, these games, they're freaking long, man. Like, do you agree with that or no? I, I feel like college football games taking four hours. It's not a new thing, but, so, like, I had to struggle to get to the end of that Purdue-Northwestern game. Do you think that that's an actual problem facing the sport, or is it maybe a little overblown? No, it's a real problem. I mean, you know, people sort of out of habit talk about, how ba- baseball takes so long. Baseball does not take as long as a college football game. Not even close. Now, there, now there might be less action, which I don't mind, because, like, like, whereas you know, college basketball is your favorite sport, honestly, like, baseball is my favorite sport. <laughs> um, but, but and so I, I can watch a baseball game. Like, I, I that, that's actually the – if the Mets are contending, the most fun I can have is watching the Mets contending. They're obviously not this year. But that that is what I enjoy most, and and then the NBA is up there pretty pretty high as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's one thing to have them on television because you might have three of them on television at the same time, and so whatever you're just going to be sitting on the couch watching football anyway. But going to a game, like, have you gone to a college football game lately? Uh, the last Paris. That's a great question. When was the last? I have not been to a college football game in at least. Five years. I mean, I, I, I couldn't sit through it, man. I don't, I don't know how people but, do but, it unless look, you're like to a that point. Uh, so I don't go to many because, you know, I, I like watching everything. Like I, I'm, I'm, I would rather sit at home and watch five different games on. You know, I've got a nice setup at my home, you know, like three big TVs, and then I've got my computer and I've got my iPad and you know I've got my uh, bar and I've got my food. Like I, I would much. I love college football weekends, not because I'm looking forward to go to a game. I love it because I'm looking forward to hanging out and watching football and, and being with the kids all day. Um, but but I did go to uh, – but I do probably go to a couple games a year. You know, I'll go down to Oxford uh, every, every once in a while. I'll go to Starkville sometimes. Um, I went to Memphis last season to see the UCLA game because it was UCLA and Josh Rosen, and uh, it was fun, but it was super duper hot, and the game took like five hours. It felt like it was. Yeah. After a while, it's like you, you're just like this. It's only halftime. It feels <laughs> like we've been out here all day, and then halftime in and of itself is long. You got yeah. this. I don't want to say the stupid bands because they like, but the, the bands take a long time to do whatever it is they're doing at halftime. I, I I do think it's something that college football needs to address. Like asking people to stand sometimes out in the hot sun. Other times in the snow for four hours, and that doesn't even include tailgating. Right, like it, it, it consumes your entire day going to a college football game, and 
on one hand, that can be fun if you're really into the tailgating stuff. But if you're just somebody who wants to go watch a college football game, like it, it's it's excessive. It, it it becomes you look up and you're in the middle of the third quarter and you're like, my God, we it, we've been out here all day and it is we got seven minutes left in the third quarter. It's a real problem, I think. Couldn't believe when I looked up last night and the third quarter was just ending. Right. It was it was the games. I mean, it must have been eleven twenty at night or with an eight o'clock start. And that's why I like college basketball a lot. One of the reasons why is it's almost like soccer. Soccer, you know, you're done in less than two hours. College right. basketball, with rare exception, that is a two hour event. It is you can absolutely build a nice little window around it. The games don't take long. And, and you know, NBA is just a shade over two and a half. It's not that bad. NFL's three. MLB's even trying to cut down. But college football, it's so long. Um, but hey, more power to the people that love it. I'm I'm glad it's back. Football's here. And then uh, the other thing is uh, I got Borzello's wedding here tonight. Our good friend Jeff Borzello finally gets married. Um, so he's doing that on Long Island. So I'll be uh, I'll be at that. And that should be interesting to say the least. But it is a long time coming. Congrats to, uh, to Mr. and Mrs. Borzello on their impending nuptials. You labeled it the right way. Finally got married. Like, yo, man, you've been dating the same girl for 20 years. It is time to get married. What are you doing? I know, man. I know. So now I've, I told him he's going to have a kid before he knows it. He's, he kind of, he put off the wedding for so long, Didn't can't even see himself as a father. He's going to look up. Next thing he knows, he's going to have children. So that should be uh, that should be plenty interesting. But, uh, but yeah, man. So, all right. There's not a ton happening right in college basketball, which is to be expected, and that's also why we do our candid coaches thing every year. I was pleased and uh, intrigued and surprised by some stuff with what we got this year. So where do you want to go here, Parrish? Where do you want to start with what kind of stood out to you with the questions that we've published and, uh, and run with over the past, what, seven days since we last podcasted? Sure. Well, uh, to catch people up, the last time we recorded, we had gone through the first three of ten candid coaches' questions. I believe they were... Um, who's going to be the best college basketball team in 2018-19? And Kansas got the uh, got the most votes for that. Who, if you could take any player off another team, put him on your team, who would you take? R.J. Barrett got the most votes there. And then I think the third one was: Do you have confidence that the committee on college commission on college basketball is going to be able to to fix the sports issues? And uh, I think it was 90 percent above 90% said, no, are you, are you crazy? And so we discussed those on the last podcast. If you missed it and you're interested, just go grab it in Apple Podcasts. But the seven questions that um, have come subsequently are as follows. Will Rick Pitino ever coach Division I basketball again? Most coaches actually said yes. Will the FBI charge another coach with a federal crime? Most coaches said no. Will the NCAA's new guidelines make the recruiting experience better for coaches or better for recruits? Most coaches said, nope, and nope. Has the FBI's investigation significantly reduced cheating in the past 10 months? Most coaches said they either didn't know or no. They said either, I'm not sure, or no, it hasn't significantly reduced cheating. Uh, Who is the most underappreciated good coach in the sport? Bob McKillop Davidson was the leading vote-getter. Who was the best hire of 2018? Chris Mack, Louisville, was the leading vote-getter. And then the last one, just sort of a fun one, we, th- we thought that, you know, given that this is what people spend all May and June debating, why not turn it over to college coaches? Who's the real GOAT, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? And 82% of the coaches said Michael Jordan. I wasn't surprised that more coaches went with Jordan than LeBron. I was surprised that it was that significant, that it was 82%. But like one coach pointed out, I, I think it was to you, and, and I had a coach say something similar to me. Um, 
that it, it might just be an age thing more than anything else. You know, largely the people who are polled in this are are people who grew up with Jordan, some of whom even played against Jordan, and so they'll lean that way. One coach told you, I think it's Jordan, but my players think it's LeBron, and it might just be a generational thing. In other words, if we ask this question, this is sort of how I wrapped up the column. Same question in 20 years, if we're still doing candid coaches in 20 <laughs> years when I'm 61 years old. If I'm, if I'm texting coaches when I'm 61 years old to ask them about LeBron or Michael Jordan, just shoot me in the face. <laughs> like something went wrong. And so, uh, but if we are, I imagine the gap would be closer or, or, or non-existent because I think when this generation of, of person um, is, is, you know, 40, 50 years old, when they've grown up with LeBron James instead of Michael Jordan, I think LeBron will get, uh, certainly more votes and possibly even more votes than Michael Jordan. Yeah, uh, let's start with that one. So I even had a co- – I didn't give you this this quote, but I had a coach, uh, definitely the coaches in his 60s, uh, said he basically listed off the top three players in the NBA from the 50s on by decade and said, if you grew up here, you're going to say this. If you grew up here, you're going to say that. Like he just listed – on all the players, I was like, that totally makes sense. But it was it was too long of a quote, so I just didn't send it to you. But he was right in what he said and then ultimately said, but if you're making me pick – I'll take Jordan over LeBron. You you do have a, a good point, but at the same time, we're close in age. You would take LeBron. I would take Jordan. I fully admit my Chicago bias. I uh, Walter Payton's my favorite all-time athlete, and then Jordan's too. So, um, I, you know, I, I can't help but say that it's Jordan. I, Le, to me, LeBron is clearly – like, it is 1A, 1B at this point, and I don't dispute anyone that wants to say LeBron because it is undeniable – that so many things of what LeBron James can do as a basketball player, Jordan never did, period. Um, Overall, I think Jordan is the better player because he was a more sustained, excellent offensive and defensive player combined um, and played, you know, in an era where there were, in my opinion, fewer really, really good basketball players than LeBron did, but he did have some all-time greats that he went against. Um, it, It is intriguing. Now, I did have some coaches give me LeBron, and what's funny, Paris, is you say it's lower than you thought, I want to say like four of my final six votes were LeBron. So we were close to being like 87, 88%. And we came up, I think it was 82, 18 was the split overall. Um, If we did poll 100 college players, I'm guessing it would be 75, 25 LeBron. I think it would be in that range. You agree? Yeah, because they've grown up watching LeBron be a completely dominant force. And like you, I agree that um, reasonable minds can disagree on this. It's not... This is not one of those debates where there's a clear right side of it, and if you're not on that side of it, you you're you're just obviously wrong. There's there's no wrong answer here. The, the, you could put together bullet point graphics to make the case for either. The only thing, and this is sort of what I wrote about, really my takeaway, and the way these things work is we you know we pose the question, then we provide the results, and then we offer you know our takeaway on the results. And really, I just turn the takeaway into my rant pro LeBron rant, right? And one of the points I made is the only part where I get frustrated with it, to the extent that I get frustrated with it, like when you're married with three children, you get frustrated with your children. (laughs) You not really LeBron, Michael Jordan debates, but uh, for the purposes of the conversation, when people point to Jordan's 6-0 record in the finals as if it's the be-all, end-all, and and then fail to acknowledge that, yeah, Michael Jordan was 6-0 in the NBA finals, that also means that you know, he didn't make the NBA Finals in nine of his 15 seasons. Like, he lost somewhere short of the NBA Finals in nine of the 15 seasons he's played. 
LeBron James has been in the NBA Finals in nine of the 15 seasons he's played. And yet he gets beat up because he's only three and six in the finals. And yet nobody really wants to acknowledge that. But he consistently went further throughout his career so far than Michael Jordan did. Yes, when Jordan got there, he won all six times. He was also favored all six times. Mm -hmm. He also never had to deal with anything like these Golden State Warriors. My point being, correct. Michael Jordan never played a team in the finals that had more than two All-Stars on it. Uh, the Golden State Warriors had four. So he never had to deal with this, which is undeniable. But, but yeah, he went 6-0. But, like, LeBron's been there, you know, nine times, three more times. Like, that, it, the idea that LeBron would have been better off losing in the Eastern Conference semifinals a handful of times so that his record in the NBA Finals would be better um, is nonsensical to me. And yet people just point to that 6-0. I, I'm, I think it's more of an accomplishment to having, having got there nine times as opposed to uh, only getting there six times in the exact same amount of years. Not to mention LeBron enters the league when he's 18 years old as opposed to Jordan enters the league after a junior year of college where he should have been more equipped to, to be impactful right from the jump given that he was just, just older. And the other thing that it gets glossed over is that though LeBron is three and six in the finals, he – has only been favored twice in the NBA Finals. I know people who like engage in this debate know that, but I don't think that the average basketball fan understands that. LeBron, according to odds makers, when the NBA Finals have started, should be two and seven all time. He's actually three and six. So when people look at that and go, ah, he's underachieved in the finals, though, not true. He's actually overachieved in the finals. And the other point I make in this debate is um LeBron gets beat up for not winning championships, regardless of what the rest of his roster looks like. Like, oh, LeBron got swept by the Warriors. Yeah, but, like, look at that roster. It stinks. Like, what was he supposed to do? It's a miracle he got to the finals. It's not a a shameful that he he got swept by a team with four All-Stars. And the point I make is that though Jordan is iconic and great, and so is LeBron, um, neither can win championships by themselves, including Michael Jordan. He never even won an Eastern Conference championship until he got another Hall of Famer on his team. And the last three championships, he had three uh, Hall of Famers total on the roster. Himself, Scottie Pippen, and and Dennis Rodman. So this idea that Jordan could have done more with these Cavs rosters than LeBron has, again, there's just no evidence to back that up. Because when he had rosters that, that, that weren't good rosters, when he didn't have Hall of Fame teammates, well, he couldn't win Eastern Conference championships. At least LeBron could win those. Could win NBA championships without Hall of Famers. But, like, he could win Eastern Conference championships without Hall of Famers. And and Jordan, like, literally never did. Although, in fairness, I think it's reasonable to say that the East was a different animal when Jordan was trying to climb it than it has been throughout mm-hmm. LeBron's best years. Um, where, well, it's true that Jordan never had to deal with something like the Golden State Warriors in the finals. Uh, it's also true that LeBron never had to deal with something like the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern Conference. Or the 86 Celtics, who are arguably the best team right there with Golden State or the 96 Bulls. The only, we can wrap this up without going on too much longer. The only thing I'll say here, Parrish, is my hot take with uh, Jordan and the Bulls is, in terms of this debate, is Jordan almost did this to himself. If he does not leave the sport, I do believe the Bulls win eight straight titles, and this probably still is not even a debate yet. We might even be getting to the very beginning of it, but if, if that had happened and the Bulls were 8-0 and Jordan was 8-0, um, he is 
truly borderline immortal for all of eternity to have done that. And if he would have been as dominant, if you want to blend what happened 96 to 98 from 91 to 93, uh, that would have been insane. But we're not there, so we'll never know. Uh, it's his fault for stepping away from the game. The other thing is, I'm so with you on this finals record and getting there. You Let's count the conference championships. Those should mean almost as much as winning the damn title in the final round because you got to break through to that. It's why Brady is better than Montana. He got to more Super Bowls. He had more opportunities when he reached the AFC championship than Montana, who's 4-0, Brady's 5-3. and I don't care. Brady's the better quarterback, has the better career, has gotten to the ultimate stage more times. So we are in complete agreement when it comes to that. Um, the Maybe we could just walk these up from most recent to sure. to – uh, to the furthest away from where we are right now, because uh, the LeBron Jordan question was Friday's question. Thursday's question was who was the best hire of 2018? And like I said, Chris Mack was the leading vote getter, but just barely, I think by 1%, he beat UConn and Dan Hurley um, in the spirit of transparency. You clearly had more Chris Mack votes than Dan Hurley votes. Mm-hmm. I had more Dan Hurley votes than Chris Mack votes. Um, but for both of us, Penny Hardaway, Memphis, I think finished third. So um, I, I wasn't surprised by the top two, and I think you could make a case for for Louisville and UConn in, in any order because they hired guys who are considered sure things. I mean, like Chris, if you go look at his Wikipedia page, he has um, consistently won at a high level um, at a school that is, yeah, built to win, but had never won at this level the way Chris has won at this level. You combine that reality with the fact that, I mean, Louisville is built to win. Despite all the scandal lately, that's a program that, um, you know, it's set up to win at the highest level of the sport. I mean, it, evidence being it's, it's first off, they got multiple coaches who have won national championships, and it's why Chris took the job to begin with because that's not the type of job you pass on. You can love Xavier as much as you want, but you don't pass on the opportunity to, to go to Louisville because – You've already seen multiple men win championships there. You can you can reasonably convince yourself you can do the same thing. And then Dan is is obviously not as accomplished as Chris, but he's really respected by his peers as a wonderful basketball coach. And you give him an, a you know a a program with the tradition and and resources of UConn, then there's no reason that he shouldn't be able to win there. So I figured those would be the top two vote getters. I, I didn't necessarily know that Memphis hiring Penny Hardaway would finish third ahead of Georgia hiring Tom Crean, Ole Miss hiring Kermit Davis, Pitt hiring Jeff Capel. And I don't think it would have back in April because I think there were coaches who were very skeptical of this back in April. But the more and more you listen to coaches now after the things Penny has done, all the things you can do in the offseason, uh, uh, re-energize a program, um, sign – recruits salvage a recruiting class even though the previous staff left you nothing you end up with a top 30 class in 2018 being involved literally with the number one player in class of 2019 number one player class of 2020 five-star prospects in both classes um the way they've handled themselves in the gyms handled themselves on the recruiting trail not just penny but Sam, uh, Sam Mitchell, Mike Miller, Tony Madlock, the the staff that he surrounded himself with. I think Penny's won some people over in the past five or six months, and that uh, I think um, what was shown in in the results of this poll, big time. Um, Matt got the most votes. Penny had the most. I would say I, I got seven or eight enthusiastic, detailed 
rah-rah, it's got to be Penny, here's why. Look at the staff, look what they can do recruiting. Mitchell's a really good coach. That program, that city's dying for it. He is going to make the biggest impact. So while Mac won, beat out Hurley just barely, um, and that's that alone speaks for itself. You know, the coaching community has said that the best hire was Chris Mack to Louisville. Uh, I will say that the ones who voted for Penny uh, were enthusiastic and more long-winded <laughs> in their reasoning than what I got, by and large, from Mack and Hurley, who also had undeniably their supporters. And uh, the key thing with all of those, with those three, is that each of those programs got their number one choice. They got the guy that was at the top of their list and uh, in two of the three cases, obviously, was sitting at a different program, um, which which goes a long way and, in my opinion, also influences the coaches' votes here because they knew that each of those guys uh, coveted those jobs and that the schools obviously coveted them even more so, so that went a long way into their votes. Crean finishing fourth, Davis, uh, Kermit Davis fifth, Jeff Capel sixth. A couple of guys at small schools got a few votes, but as these things go, and just, I guess, for full transparency, transparency's sake. Um, when we started this question, I, I posed to Paris to say, let's do major conference. And he said, well, that's kind of nebulous. And it is to a certain extent. Um, so so I, I put this, this question forward to coaches and said, listen, which of these hires was the best? If you want to, you know, in history's sake, coaches usually vote for the higher uh, power conference coaches. If there is one from a smaller conference, uh, by all means, uh, you, can, you can do that. But as a matter of like what matters, uh, the big the big jobs are, are really what we're talking about here. Um, if there's a small school that made a really good hire, we'll know about that in short time. And lo and behold, that coach will probably go on to get a bigger job and then uh, finish near or at the top of a pole just like this in a few years down the road. So um, I think it was a good hiring year for 2018 Parish. Uh, I don't think any of these, and this is not normally the case on a year-by-year basis. If we were to take, say, the top five vote-getters in a poll like this and we were to apply it even retroactively and look at the past eight, nine years' worth, I would say, me personally, Parish, I'd say there's at least one, maybe two in a given year that might finish in the top five that I would disagree with. Uh, I don't disagree with that in this case this year. I think all the schools that hired the guys got the right guys got good guys yes there's obviously the potential for some of these not to work out to flame out uh but as we stand right now uh if you're a fan of any of those schools even capel and pitt included who finished sixth um you should be feeling optimistic heading into the season obviously let's circle back in march and see where we are after year one the quote that got a lot of attention in memphis is a quote that a coach gave to you and it went this way um, the Penny Hardaway thing is going to work. First of all, he can coach. Second, he's got a great staff. Third, they have ridiculous advantages in recruiting. And lastly, it's a Tiger town. I don't give a S about the Grizzlies. Unless they F it up and get in trouble by getting stupid, I'd get on that bandwagon. Sam Mitchell is a really, really good pro coach. They're going to recruit like effing crazy. I'm telling you, that thing is ready to explode. That's a pretty colorful quote. It's like <laughs> I, I got a text from somebody who works in the administration at the University of Memphis, and they were like, we're going to blow that up and put it in our practice <laughs> he's, like, he's oh, like tell me he's like he's like uh he's like tell whoever whatever coach said that uh tell him i i i owe him a gift basket because that's the type of stuff like it means something to that administration because they got beat up a little bit by people in the coaching community you know for hiring for firing you know a legend in tubby smith after just two years like that wasn't popular in the coaching community even if largely the coaching community didn't understand why um, it, it, it didn't matter. It just wasn't a popular thing. And even those people now are like, listen, I think if you'd have asked this question in April, some people would have said, man, Memphis did, did Tubby dirty. Now, those same people that would have said that are more 
likely to say this. Eh, I don't really like the way they did Tubby, but my God, it's hard to argue with, with, you know, with what's happening now. Like they clearly are in a better place today than they were back in March, April. And even the Tubby supporters um, have to acknowledge that. And it's, it's fun for the administration. I can tell you um, to hear coaches be this enthusiastic about what they did, because though it was an incredibly popular thing in Memphis, uh, go back and read the columns from really uh, the uh, national writers outside of myself, because I, I think I had a better understanding of why this needed to happen and why it would work. And I laid it all out and it's working exactly like I thought it would. Um, but the other columns from around the country, like we're not positive about Memphis hiring Penny Hardaway. And yet even, you know, and so for when the administration now sees these types of quotes from the coaching community, um, you know, they, they, they take, they like it. You know, they were fired up about this. Yeah. I obviously am not going to give up what coach uh, gave me that quote, but I will just throw this little, this little tidbit out. It is the head coach of a team that's in our preseason top 25 and one. That's all I'll say. And it was a uh, good conversation. <laughs> but the only thing I said on radio was that it's clearly somebody who understands Memphis. You know, it's clearly somebody who understands the dynamics of the city, what basketball means there. So it's somebody who's got a, a good grasp on on what that program means to the city and and what Penny means to the city and just all it, it's somebody who had a good grasp on the city and that that seemed obvious to me. All right, most underappreciated, really good head coach. So um, Bob McKillop wins this. Uh, in uh, maybe the coaches I spoke to knew uh, knew who they were talking to and uh, were trying to appease. <laughs> I, these. Th- I thought that too, by the way. Swear to God, I, those that was an accurate tally. So my winner was actually Rick Bird, um, who took third, I think. And I'll also say this, Parish. I want to say like of the first like twenty five coaches. Let's say twenty five coaches I talked to. Like, I had 22 different responses. I was like, this is going to be a disaster. Like, the winner's going to get four votes here. But fortunately, as it went along, um, got a few repeat answers, and then we had a few guys that separated themselves. Um, We'll also say I had three coaches give me Jay Wright, and I said, that's ridiculous. You are not allowed to vote for Jay Wright. I had a coach give me Mark Few. I didn't allow him to keep that vote. And then the only one that was, like, borderline, I I allowed a coach to keep Mike Bray because I think that is still valid. But I had – I had a Tony Bennett. I'm like, you're out of your mind. Okay, Tony Bennett is widely regarded as like a top 10 coach in the game. He's absolutely appreciated. And I also had one give me Calipari. And I'm like, dude, I, no, I, he is he is so widely recognized. I, I understand if you want to make the case that he should be considered a more elite X and O mind than he's considered, but he is absolutely appreciated. So shout out to the coaches who gave me absolutely insane, obvious answers, including three for Jay Wright coming off a national championship. Obviously, those coaches didn't apply here. And uh, Bob McKillop, rightfully so, wins out. And I would even say McKillop is just about reached the point where his skill uh, is fairly appreciated even outside coaching circles, but he was the rightful winner this year. Yeah, I did too. I I actually texted with Bob the night of that because um, he was, you know, he was appreciative of, of that. You know, it's when you work, you know, outside of the, you know, a top seven league in the country, you, you, you can get lost a little bit January and February unless you have um, Steph Curry or unless you make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. Um, but he, he clearly is respected by, by his peers. And uh, one of the things I told him is that, you know, sometimes when we ask these questions, I'm surprised by the answers. Or I go, ooh, wow, I didn't think, I didn't think it'd be that, or I didn't think it'd be that by that margin. For instance, uh, I, didn't, I, I, I 
I thought when we asked for the best team that Kansas would would be either one or two. I didn't think Kansas would win by 20 percentage points ahead of anybody else. Um, my point being with this one, I wasn't surprised with the result. Like Bob McKellop is a completely uh, reasonable answer, if not the uh, obvious answer for, for this type of question because you know he was good before Steph Curry. He was good with Steph Curry. He's been good without Steph Curry. And, you know, that they transitioned into the Atlantic 10 and they've been in that thing four seasons now. They won it the first season. They've gone to the NCAA tournament twice. They're going to have another good team this year. He's got another pro guard on his roster. And we're talking about a a private school with only around 2,000 students. And he's been able to to maintain a, a a consistently good basketball program uh, for years and years and years. And I, I don't know if you've had these conversations with Atlantic Ten coaches, but but I have. And they will uh, almost to a man, I think, tell you that Davidson's the toughest scout in their league. And the reason is because they're going to play smart, but but also because they they nobody else plays like them. You know that nobody else plays the style of, of of basketball in the A10 that Davidson plays, and that can that can make it difficult. And then, you know, earlier in this off season, I went down to Florida and spoke to the Atlantic Ten coaches. I, I went, to, I had a dinner with them, and then the next day, I, I, I don't want to say I spoke to them as much as I just like participated in a a discussion about scheduling and and how to get more at large consideration and how the quadrant system is set up to. To, to, to keep them out because they're they're very concerned about like where the sport is headed like it, it doesn't seem like the gap between the haves and haves nots uh, is is getting um, anything other than more significant and the selection process they view it as as tilted against them and I think there's a lot of reason for them to to, to believe that the quadrant system being the main one because what we learned from the selection process last year or last season I should say is that um, they don't really care about how many opportunities you got. They just really want to know, like, well, how many quadrant one wins did you get? And, you know, they think eight is a great number, even if you had 20 opportunities, as opposed to three being a great number if you only had four opportunities. And all of these things work against a league like the Atlantic 10 because they have problems scheduling in the non-league and they don't get as many quadrant one opportunities in the league as, say, uh, your typical Big 12 school would. Um, so we discussed all these things. And I can just tell you from being in the room, like, Bob has the respect of those guys in that room. Like, he's not the loudest voice in there. Um, but he is... He's he's somebody they all look to, and when he does speak, they listen, and what he says matters. And you know, I I've been in in those settings before, and not all coaches who work in the same league like each other. <laughs> you know that as well as I do. But they all see, and they don't all respect each other. You know that as well as I do. Like I can tell you, there are ACC coaches who understand Mike Krzyzewski's the goat, but they don't necessarily respect everything about what's going on. And same thing with Roy Williams, and so on and so forth. But at least from my perspective, when I was in that room, those Atlantic Ten coaches that got an immense amount of respect for for Bob, and I think again, it it came through in this in this poll question. You know, I think the highest compliment you can give somebody in their in any profession sometimes is 
is the compliment that, hey, you're good at your people. Other people who do this job think you're good at this job and they respect the way you go about doing your job. And, and Bob, uh, Bob clearly checks both of those boxes. He does. And then I'll note that uh, Ed Cooley was the coach from the, you know, uh, from a major conference who got the most votes. I think that's uh, a validated vote. He has done the unprecedented in taking Providence to five straight NCAA tournaments. I believe the record before that was three consecutive tournaments. It might have even been two. I know some PC Hawks listening will uh, set me straight on that. But regardless, Cooley um, – is thriving there, and if this freshman class this season lives up to its expectation, um, then PC's got a good shot uh, in a Big East that won't be quite as good as last year at breaking through to a six straight. Speaking of Providence, uh, it once upon a time had one uh, Richard Andrew Patino as its coach, and we also had a question on Patino, and this was one that I was particularly interested in to see the response, and how coaches voted respectively with this parish. So we asked, do you believe that Rick Pitino will be hired by a Division One school uh, ever again? Will he basically ever coach in college basketball again? But specifically Division One level. And the responses varied in terms of yes or no and why yes or no. But yes, one out, 54 to 46%. So close to a 50-50 split. Ton of cynicism on both ends of this with the coaching community. And a lot of guys think that he's not deserving of a second chance. Some coaches I spoke with said, I don't believe that everything that is attached to Rick, uh, he knew it all, but I find it hard to believe that he knew none of it. In fact, I can almost guarantee you that that cannot possibly be the case given who he is, how long he's been in the game, how much of a uh, controlling presence he was within that program, with that, within that university, and just the fact that he could be um, – you know, a micromanager in some regards is just impossible. This question comes as Patino is getting ready to release uh, a book uh, that I have been told does not even address the FBI scandal until uh, about page 175 in that very book. Um, I'll wrap it up by the, by saying this. My guess is that he does not coach in Division One school ever again. Um, I don't have extreme conviction, Parrish, in that belief. If we look up in three years and he's indeed uh, coaching again, it will not stun me. But if you are making me say one way or the other, I am going to say no. And some of that gets reinforced by the fact that small side headline, by the way, uh, it was uncovered this week that former Louisville assistant Kenny Johnson, in fact, um, used influence to say that Christian Dawkins, who's caught up and was charged by the FBI, uh, when these players make official visits to universities, you have to label who is with the player on that visit, be it parent, guardian, or otherwise. We found out that, um, according to uh, paperwork that was uncovered uh, by local media, that uh, Dawkins was not initially on that form, and then the day the FBI scandal broke, or the day after, uh, he was later added to the form for transparency's sake. So little things like that on top of everything else we've heard make me say that Patino will not ever coach in Division One again. Well, you wrote this one, and one of the you know, sort of questions you posed in it was like, first, got to figure out, does Rick Patino want to coach again? And I can just tell you, honestly, from talking to Rick, he 100% wants to coach again. So this won't be a case where, um, yeah, you know, I might just be done with it. He wants to coach again. I don't think he likes the way this story um I don't think he likes this chapter of this story and, and, and wouldn't want it to be the last of his professional uh, career. But also, I think he's bored. You know, this is a, you know, Rick is, is I don't want to say unique, 
because I'm not sure it's true, but like he's a very hands-on head coach. Like he he's not the guy who'd come in at noon and you know after his assistants had already put some kids through individual workouts. Like he was doing the individual workouts. He likes being in the gym. He likes watching film. You know, um, he he misses it uh, immensely, and and he's bored. You know, it's it's totally different because like Rick's got you know a hundred million dollars, and my father doesn't. But my father is is recently retired. My, both my parents are recently retired, and my mom loves it. My mom's just enjoying like hanging out with her grandkids and like going to the movies if she wants to go to the movies. Like she's really enjoying retirement. My dad is bored out of his mind. Like he 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 if if he could go back to work, he'd go back to work. He he likes working. He doesn't like waking up and not having a million things to do. I actually went just last week and bought him an Apple TV and went and hooked it up for him and like subscribed him to Netflix and Hulu cuz he'll just like I'll just pop into his house and he'll just be sitting there like watching crap TV in the middle of the day cuz he he don't know how to do anything and I'm like that there's like quality television you could like watch and you'd get you'd get into it and you'd binge watch it and it it like if you're really that bored it'd help you pass the days so I went and got him an Apple TV and I got him hooked up with actually made him a list of of shows to watch <laughs> like I got it it's like a little uh like a little assignment mm-hmm. and of course, now I got to teach him how to like actually like use the Apple TV because that's <laughs> might as well be a bomb he's trying to to, to undo. <laughs> like it's, but but like Rick is more like my father, not when it comes to technology, but in the sense that he's bored with retirement, so he wants to coach again. Um, the question becomes like, is somebody going to give him an opportunity? And I think that's totally reliant on how the rest of this FBI investigation unfolds. If one of those Adidas executives, you know, gets under oath or, or, you know, starts cooperating if they're not already. And they absolutely say, listen, yes, of course, Rick Patino knew what was going on. Like we were working hand in hand with Rick to get this money to, to Bowen's family. Then, then there's no chance. Then he's never going to coach at the division one level again. But if they don't actually put him in a room, if they don't actually, put him with knowledge of this, which Rick continues to deny he had, then the the further it goes on, the less people will care, and there'll be an athletic director at a mid-major school, or maybe even a better than that school, who's like, I can get one of the greatest basketball coaches of all time. Um, you know, he did get fired at Louisville, but there's never been any real evidence that he knew, had direct knowledge of what went on, or that he was involved in what went on. And they'll rationalize it the same way you rationalize anything in life, and and then he will coach again. But I think it's totally reliant, and 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 more than one coach told us this. It's gonna it's gonna be reliant on how this FBI investigation unfolds. Who says what under oath about Rick Pitino? And then correct, yes, the the trials. If we do not get plea deals and aren't spared any trials, that is going to be obviously critical. And I don't want to underestimate how good of a coach Patino is and is considered to be. I had two coaches tell me that they think he is actually the best basketball coach that's ever been in college, ever. Better than Wooden, better than Krzyzewski. Just you give him a random assortment of guys and give any other coach a random assortment of guys, you know, he's going to take Patino's team. He's just going to do it, thinks he's the smartest guy that's ever done that kind of stuff. And that kind of impact, um, if you are at a school that has an opening – 
it, I can foresee a situation. But if you're making me say one way or the other, I'm going to say no because I do think that some damaging stuff could potentially come out about Patino. Speaking of the FBI, we did ask, do we? Let me, let me, oh, okay, okay, okay. Let me add one thing real quick. Yep. Um, because I think that's a very valid opinion that Rick's the best college basketball coach of all time. Like if he'd never left for the NBA, he'd mm-hmm. be right up there with with Chashevsky for for wins. And like, let's assume for a second that he never leaves Kentucky. How many championships does yeah. he end up with? You know, the one Tubby got, he'd have got, and that thing was rolling. And you know, and it, it, rolling similarly to the way John's got it rolling now, except different in the sense that you weren't losing all your players after one year. I think I think Rick could be up there with Mike in in national championships, and Rick could be up there with Mike in wins, if not ahead of Mike, if he never leaves for 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 the NBA. So when people say that. Rick Pitino's the best guy to ever coach college basketball. It's not an outlandish thing to say. Um, it, it's it's completely reasonable. And I, I like what you said, one coach said, like that he didn't believe Rick knew about everything that went on in Louisville, but you know, finds it hard to believe he didn't know about some of the things that go on in Louisville. I think that's also a valid opinion because you talk to anybody who's ever worked with Rick, he's really hands-on. Like he's he's really present. He's obviously smart. He's not walking around uh oblivious to the way things get done at the highest level of the sport. I do think there are some college coaches who are a little oblivious to how things get done. Like they're just like coaching their coaching their teams and like their old school guys, but Rick ain't that. And so where I always believed that he did not know about the prostitution parties, I, I, the stripper parties, I, I sincerely believe he didn't know about those as I've stated before, because it makes no sense for him to allow them to go on in that dorm. Like if if you really condoned that type of recruiting by somebody on your staff, you'd be like, "Yo, man, just get it off campus. Make it a house party. Take it to the downtown Marriott." But like, we ain't bringing people on campus with cameras in our dorms and and creating witnesses to major rules violations. Like, get it off campus. So that's why I believe he didn't know about that because he wouldn't allow it to go on where it went on. But Rick's not naive. If he didn't know about the Brian Bowen stuff, he it's because he went out of his way to not know about the Brian Bowen stuff. Because when you're not even recruiting a five-star player and suddenly you get a phone call and they're like, hey, you want this five-star player? And then he comes and he commits. Something happened. Rick knows that. In fact, the only other time I can think of a coach telling a similar story, like we weren't even recruiting Brian Bowen. And then, like, we get a phone call, and it's like, would you be interested in Brian Bowen? And I'm like, of course. Like, Rick said it was the easiest recruitment ever, which is a red flag. Um, the only other time I remember a coach saying something similar, Tim Floyd about, about O.J. Mayo. It's the same story. Tim, Tim got a phone call from somebody. Hey, would you be interested in O.J. Mayo? Of course I'd be interested in O.J. Mayo. Then we get a commitment from O.J. Mayo. Easiest recruitment ever. Well, it turns out, like, you know, everybody was paying everybody. Um, and same thing with here. So... If you get that phone call, Rick's smart enough to know, all right, this, is, this isn't this is normal. By his own admission, it's not normal. And so what, what's going on here? And, and it, you know, it, again, on that one, I, I will totally, I'll ride for Rick forever about the, the stripper parties. But on the Brian Bowen thing, I, I, I think you'd have to be a little naive to think, again, one of two things. He knew. Or he went out of really out of his way to not know. Like, hey, leave me. I don't need to know nothing about nothing. Don't fill me in on the details. You guys do whatever you guys do. It's got to be one of those two things. 
we had two other questions uh, regard to the. Yeah, because earlier I said we had we had seven left. We'd already talked about three. Actually, we'd already talked about four because the other one we had talked about was has the FBI's investigation significantly reduced cheating in the past ten months? Right. Both coaches said no, or that they weren't sure. We talked about that one on the last mm-hmm. one. As well. So the one we didn't get to with the FBI was will the FBI charge another coach in its case on college basketball? And the last one we'll get to in a second here was the NCAA new guidelines. Um, with this FBI question, will it charge another coach? You know, from now until whenever this case wraps up, um, let's acknowledge the fact that most of the coaches, if not all of the coaches that we polled here, are not privy to inside information because it is the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is the Department of Justice, and leaks are <laughs> highly unlikely to put it uh, to put it lightly here. So it is a lot based on their own interpretation and what they think, and also potentially what they may know of uh, cheating that could have occurred in the sport and how that could lead to potential charges down the road if anything is brought out in discovery and trials. Um, overall, more no's than yeses, and uh, that's what I thought. I thought it'd be a little closer. So we had 63% say no, 37% say yes, they believe another coach will be charged. A couple coaches said they were hoping it would happen, which is a, a, a little harsh and, and kind of hard to hear. But the, the reasons were, listen, I'm so sick of the guys that cheat in this business getting ahead, either them or their staffs. And, you know, I do my damnedest to make sure that we do not cheat. I, I insist to my staff. I know it. I'm on top of my guys. We do not cut the corners. So, yeah, if there are still guys out there that have cheated one way or the other, I want them to get pinched because I'm tired of going against this. The game's already rigged too much against me to begin with. That was their reasoning for it. Uh, But overall, the belief that there won't be more coaches charged has been the passage of time. we had a superseding indictment come out in April that implicated Kansas, roped in Maryland. NC State has acknowledged that it was subpoenaed as well. So you had other schools that were brought into this in an official capacity, and still we've had no coaches that have actually been charged in this since late September of 2017. That was the biggest reason why coaches said no. They purely believed that we would have gotten to the middle of August or the end of July when I pulled some of these guys. We would have had another one. We haven't had it yet. That was uh, that was their response. Was this what you were expecting, Parrish? Kind of more no's than yeses? Were you expecting maybe even more of a no-yes vote than 63-37? I was certainly thinking more no's than yeses. It's only because I've had these conversations with, with coaches even before we posed the question to coaches uh, for the purposes of this series. And the prevailing thought seems to be that the FBI can charge more people if they want to, but for whatever reason. And I'm not even sure why coaches believe this. But more often when I talk to them, this is what they seem to believe. They think the FBI is done with this. Like they don't, they like, like this is not a popular, um, it has not been a popular investigation. People, to the extent that people comment on it at all, they don't go, oh, wow, thank God the FBI is cleaning up college basketball as much as they go. Why is the FBI messing around with college basketball? You know, like, aren't there other things you should be doing with your time? And I think that, Perhaps people in that office have – I shouldn't say this is what I believe. I don't know what I believe. But but what coaches seem to believe is that people in that office have now decided, like, listen, okay, we, we, we made our big splash when we made it. Now let's just get the, these cases done and, and move on. And, you know, we've, we, sh- we, we shook them, and, and, and we made them create a commission on college basketball, and we made them address some stuff, and, and hopefully we scared some people. 
But, like, the idea that they want to drag this thing on another three years, charging a new coach and then a new coach and a new coach, for whatever it's worth, college coaches don't seem to, to think that's the way this is going to go down. I don't know if they're right or wrong, but but I did know in advance of this that that is what they mostly thought. Yeah. Um, we'll see. Uh, the first trial is doesn't deal with any of the coaches in this matter, but it does deal with James Gatto, who is obviously a significant uh, part of this, part of Adidas, and was someone that was close to a lot of coaches in the business. Um, so he'll be involved in that. It's supposed to start October 1st. We wait to see if that actually will happen or if any sort of plea deal is reached. Uh, but I do think, as I wrote in, the, in that uh, Candid Coaches post, um, we will have more information and advancement of this story in October. That is guaranteed one way or the other. Whether it's a plea deal or we go to trial, we will have more movement on that. The last question was interesting because, I, <laughs> I mean, we knew what the answer was going to be with this. I went back – so. Full uh, transparency here. With this particular question, will the NCAA's new guidelines make the recruiting experience better or worse for coaches and prospects? I went with that question to a lot of coaches before it became official because I had reported and got information of what was going to happen. And then once it became official, I circled back to a few more coaches to see if they wanted to change their votes. None of them did. Overwhelmingly. And it was important to me, Parrish, to separate coaches and prospects here because they are two different entities. There are things that often, as we see throughout college athletics, that benefit coaches that don't benefit players. And sometimes we see it reverse the benefit players and not coaches. The transfer rule, you can point to that and it changes therein is one of those things. And in fact, as I note in the piece, I actually think the transfer uh, culture is going to uh, get even, quote, worse because of what's happened here. So anyway, coaches say that the new rules and regulations, which we talked about on this podcast, I don't want to get into all the details here because there's just so much. They say 67, 66% said it'll be worse. 31% said it'll be the same. 3% said it was going to be better, including um, one coach who has made a Final Four said it will be better. Um for uh, for the other side, for the prospects, 68-30, and then just 2%. It is a terrible look uh, for the NCAA. Even if you want to call coaches too cynical, even if you want to say that they're too resistant to change and that everyone hates change, it is not a good look. Similar to the question we had last week about um, the commission fixing the sports problems, when you only have 3% saying that this is going to be an improvement, uh, even if it improves in some ways, I think that the verdict and uh, has already been decided here. No matter what we see from these camps and what happens in July, it's uh, it's going to be a problem. And not just for the evaluations. And I got to say, Paris, the fact that so many coaches at big schools said, listen, man, I think we're going to generally be okay. I think it's going to be about the same. But I'm telling you, I worked at this mid-major and that low major. These guys are getting screwed. These coaches on these staffs are not going to have the same kind of opportunities to get these kind of players, or they're going to lose out on players they might have otherwise had. And then you want to look at the other prospects that are coming from two stoplight towns that are not going to have these same kind of opportunities. There was a lot of genuine empathy from the coaching profession, which I found refreshing, if not just a little bit surprising, because even though there's 300 now 53 teams in the sport and you take four coaches per staff and it's that's a ton of people that's more than a thousand people all over close to you know 14 50 and change or whatever it is still a smaller world than i think people realize these coaches they've walked a lot of the same paths a lot of the same trails and so that the guys who are now more comfortable more established at big jobs one they've been there two they know that you know they could ultimately one day get fired and wind up at that level again so they're well aware of what could be happening there Keep that in mind, then I'll circle back and close with this. Because you're going to have misevaluations, and because this whole process is going to take years to get used to in terms of how you're going to recruit, how you're going to adapt to the camp style, you're going to have 
uh, players wind up at programs that they shouldn't be at. So let's just say on an average over the past five years, we've had 600 players transfer. That number might even be a little bit low. I am telling you that is going to go upward of 700, maybe upward of 800, because you might have players go to the low major level who should be playing D2, players to the high major level that should be playing the mid-major level. You're going to have even more of this going forward. I think it's a guarantee we're going to look up in two, three years, and we're going to see way more kids transferring than we even have now. And while it doesn't affect you and me, Parrish, I, I think coaches, this is going to be a high, high stress point in their profession going forward. Yeah, this is not a – a problem for Kentucky. It's a problem for Western Kentucky. Or, or, you know, it's not a problem for North Carolina. It's a problem for Davidson. It's it's a problem, like, you're not going to see, if you are you know, a, a mid-major program, you're not going to see as many prospects as you would normally see. You know, Kentucky's guys are identified very early on, and, you know, they're recruiting, you know, off of a top 50 list, and, and you know, they, players who are going to be exposed for years. But, you know, it's going to hurt mid-majors and low-majors. That's undeniable. And when we ask more than 100 college coaches, like the people these rule changes actually affect, and basically nobody says that they improved the system, people either think they made it worse or it's about the same. But, like, almost nobody – in fact, I think literally nobody told me, yes, it's going to be better for the coaches or, yes, it's going to be better for the players – when nobody thinks you actually made it better, what are you doing? Like, uh, like uh, apply that to anything else in life. Hey, I'm going to go fix this thing. All right, hey, I fixed it. But it's not better in any way whatsoever. Then you didn't fix anything. You just you, you either kept it the same or you made it worse. And the overwhelming majority of co- college coaches think that the, the changes to the calendar and, and, and what events are going to exist and, and which ones won't, where they can go and where they can't. Like, the overwhelming majority think that the NCAA either made things worse for them and for players or kept it about the same for them and, and about the same for players. Almost nobody thinks that the, the system is improved for coaches or players. And, it, it, and I agree with them, by the way, and I think most people do. Then, then what was the NCAA doing? Why would you implement these changes if nobody thinks they're good? Why? Why would you implement these changes when the men who are in, who are most directly affected by them do not think you're actually helping in any way whatsoever? You've either kept things the same or you've made them worse. That means you failed by definition. Yeah. I mean, this, this goes back to the commission issue and getting recommendations from the NABC. I mean, and then you got coaches. Basically, so many of the coaches I spoke with said the NABC is out of touch it relies on the voices of a select few who don't rese- who don't represent uh, the feelings and leanings of the majority within that uh, organization. And if you really wanted to try and bottom line a lot of this stuff, Emmerich establishes a commission, puts the wrong people on the commission. The commission then relies on uh, a lot of the stuff on the NABC. The NABC's recommendations don't come from a point of a democratic point of view, but uh, a select few guys, established voices who've been in that. And so then those recommendations are fired back at the commission. The commission takes those, interprets them as they may, and this is what you get as a result. And so few people are happy in the end. I feel like I've run out of things to say. Yeah, man, let's have a great, great uh, Labor Day weekend. Enjoy your college football. Enjoy your nice southern weather. Uh, college football also in Mark's it's the southern ar- weather. It's hot, bro. It's hot <laughs> and humid. It's miserable down here. 
well, I figured it might be getting a little chillier, but you know what? Give that another month, I guess. But um, but yeah, no, listen, college football's arrival also means, you know, college basketball isn't too, too far behind. So we thank the listeners for uh, for sticking with us through this offseason. We are uh, happy to chat with each other and by proxy uh, chat with you. We're getting there slowly but surely. And uh, all intentions are uh, are a podcast next week, but I might as well just, you know, I'm I have a second child due here soon here. But I do not believe that that child will arrive before our next scheduled podcast. So all intentions, we'll be talking with you in a matter of five to seven days. In other words, if we're not, blame it on baby Norlander. That's right. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry, MF, and Teagle, the legend. And please go subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast via Apple Podcasts. Rate it favorably. Do that for me, please. Do that. How many times do I have to ask you? Rate it favorably. That means five stars and nice comments. Mostly about me, but if you want to include Norlander in the nice comments, that's fine. I'm, I'm not – you don't have to, but it's okay if you do. That's all I ask. And like I said, unless baby Norlander screws up everything for the first of many times in his life or her life, we will talk to you again next week. Till then, take care.